Hello, everyone. Welcome to the eighth and the last session of Nick Land's Bitcoin and Philosophy Seminar. Sorry for being a little bit late. Uh, we were sort of like gathering thoughts and putting people together to start the to start the seminar live. So I'm gonna pass pass it on to Nick to begin. Okay. Thanks, Mo. Um, so, okay, we've reached the buffers, so to speak, or we will have reached the buffers in, in whatever, a couple of hours. So, um, the, the title I've got for this session, which I think if I, I haven't looked at, I've been going by memory, is like time, truth, and being, or something equally uh, modest like that, um, is just to say that this is the final, this is the final uh, sync for all of our philosophical quandaries about Bitcoin and the blockchain and these things. Um, but also this session is a time, all you guys are going to be doing a, an assignment. Um, um, and so this is an opportunity to raise any questions relevant to that or make points about what you want to do or get discussions going about the topics that you want to pursue in that. Um, I'm sure that um, we're going to communicate after we close down tonight, so it's not as if this is going to be the end of the line on that, but it's definitely, a, in terms of getting everyone together, a, a, a kind of precious opportunity to thrash things out together that you think that you're going to be um, working on. So I don't know whether I should um, I should do a little spiel uh, because I think as I say this is a special thing but I'll do a very short one and then um, anyone who wants to jump in at any stage as always but especially today do so. Um, so if I kind of, uh, if I'm going to hold out on this time, truth and being thing, and I think all of these terms are terms that are defensible, if grandiose are defensible in terms of, of Bitcoin and what we've been talking about, um, and try to just tie them together, um, I think the single term um, that is absolutely essential and which actually I was talking to Chris a little bit earlier and this came up here is the notion of irreversibility. Um, I think that we've come over and over again to the importance of irreversibility to uh, Bitcoin and we've come across it in a mixture of ways, some kind of very informal, where it's not totally clear that that's what we're talking about, others completely explicit. Um, but just to sort of rehearse a little bit, um, we've seen that from irreversibility, you can very quickly finding, just start finding yourself talking about the nature of the contract and the reason that Bitcoin in terms of if we're talking about incentives and motives and the actual objectives of the system, the reason that it has a relation to irreversibility is because of the relationship of irreversibility to 
the contract. That a contract in, in principle is always irreversible and its value is precisely tied up with its irreversibility. And the very notion of a bond um, in a wider sense than purely financial instrument in the sense city of London self-defining slogan my word is my bond is exactly tied up with the notion of the irreversibility of the contract and that Bitcoin mechanizes or automates contractual irreversibility and that is what gives it its value and the specific uh, way in which that is manifested within Bitcoin, as we've seen over and over again, of course, is the double spending problem, or the solution to the double spending problem, which is precisely the introduction of irreversibility into financial transactions. The double spending problem is the notion that you can make a financial commitment, you can give someone money, and then you can take it back and or to, which is the same thing seen in a slightly different way you can spend that money again as if you hadn't spent it the first time you can give it to someone else as if you had a person you gave it to so the relationship between the double spending problem the contract and irreversibility is absolutely locked tight those those are three different vocabularies for talking about essentially the same thing so so the blockchain the underlying technology of Bitcoin is a machine for establishing mechanical irreversibility within the sphere of commercial transactions. So that's, that's one aspect of it. We've also seen irreversibility emerging as a cryptographic theme of incredible importance so that um, the huge historical transition from symmetrical to asymmetrical cryptography upon which Bitcoin builds is the cryptographic form of the problematic of irreversibility. Certain, um, certain arithmetical relationships that have an innate one-way character so you can easily go um, from a private key to a public key but as in a ratchet you can't go back from the public key to the private key. The private key is uh, intractable, cryptographically intractable from the... and you have this gradient, this, this problem of, um, or, or maybe you should say solution uh, of irreversibility coming in within an absolutely revolutionizing cryptography and this is something that Bitcoin is clearly built upon and then more widely um, and we see this sort of again quite explicitly discussed is the irreversibility that we get to through um, statistical mechanics or thermodynamics or the whole uh, science of uh, tensed time, of temporal irreversibility, um, where 
uh, a passage from the unlike classical physics and unlike the notion of reversible time that you get in these Laplacian type models of the universe or even Newtonian models of the universe where you can reverse a physical equation and it doesn't make any difference. You can't tell which is the correct direction, which is the proper um, orbital path of a planet. It seems to work equally well in both directions. As soon as you move into the era of thermic engines, um, work in its thermodynamic sense, entropy production, you have temporal irreversibility. You have time in a strong sense, time in a sense that is not reducible to a spatial um, dimension. And then a theme of irreversibility built into the natural sciences um, and into anything that then draws upon that in terms of our modern discussions of complexity, uh, self-organization, um, all of these uh, kind of themes. So, I mean, I maybe we'll just call that thermodynamic irreversibility. Um, and uh, so we're talking about time already, so I don't think it needs any justification to say, well, what's time got to do with irreversibility? I think it would be a more interesting question, and I would suspect impossible question to say how could you separate the question of time from a question of irreversibility. Truth um, <laughs> truth is only slightly more complicated because I think that um, truth is a kind of contract. Um, I think that what is at stake in a specifically commercial context in Bitcoin is the refusal of the possibility of someone saying I take that back. Um, you, there, there is a commitment to a statement, there is a commitment uh, that is that can't be reversed and a lot of the uses already envisaged for the blockchain are exploiting this. The fact that if you if you make a claim that is of the form of a truth claim, it is structurally isomorphic from a financial or commercial claim. Um, and the problem of irreversibility is exactly the same. Um, um, if you are going to trust the blockchain as an epistemological engine rather than a commercial engine, you're not changing that much at, when you get to this extremely abstract level. You want a, a machine that forecloses reversal. That is that makes it impossible to go back on something that has been um, claimed. So the one that really is the uh, abysmal element in this, obviously, is being. And this is something that's been there from the start, I think, of this, this whole discussion of Bitcoin as ontology. And so I think the suggestion that I'd like to sort of float to get things rolling with this really is, can we just run the whole of our ontological problematic out of irreversibility? Is there anything at all that we're missing? 
if we're wanting to say that in talking about being and talking about ontology, we're talking about irreversibility. And the difference between reality and its idealization is a difference that is totally captured by the notion of irreversibility. To a uh, consistent and exhaustive translation of all our ontological problems into the language of, of irreversibility, then we're, I think, in just one short step in the position where we see the blockchain as an ontological machine. That the blockchain does ontology, and it does it probably in a number of ways, but it does it in one extremely obvious way by actually producing in a way that I don't think has been really well anticipated by producing artificial an artificial ontology or even I think we could say synthetic being and so I think we're in the if if this if I'm not at all suggesting that there aren't going to be a lot of questions up to this point but if people can just follow uh, in a hypothetical mode up to this point, um, then the sort of issues that are just natural in terms of thinking about Bitcoin as a simulated artificial metallic currency, and we have seen that the the way in which Bitcoin simulates foundation in some ways, or a monetary foundation, um, are trans are, can be translated into much more wide-ranging philosophical dimensions. That that w the the Bitcoin is simulating being as soon as it sets up a blockchain that is an artificial time that establishes a mode of artificiality uh, sorry um, a mode of irreversibility artificially produced upon which any kind of complication of time must be built that it's a it's a it, we're not talking about time at all unless we're talking about this foundational irreversibility that is that is exemplified by the succession of blocks in the blockchain so so the blockchain is an artificial time it's an artificial history and it's transcendental in the sense it's it's something beyond or before which we cannot go it cannot be second-guessed now this this I take to be a kind of again claim that has to be contested because it's so extreme in its implications but the implications are that um, that the human subject has no appeal to any criterion of 
ontological judgment that exceeds or transcends or um, uh, can usurp the authority of the blockchain as an ontological criteria. That, that virtually or implicitly, tacitly, in the, in the area we're going into, the blockchain is an ultimate ontological criteria and that, it, that we can expect it will be used in that way. We can expect that things will be built on it in such a way that when it comes in any field whatsoever, in the natural sciences as well as in, uh, in commerce, in any human contract or agreement or negotiation, um, that people are asking what without any attribution of trust, without having to believe something, without having to um, without having to take someone's word for it in a way that is conceivably reversible. If there is something that we have to be able to assume is real, then the blockchain is presenting itself as satisfying that, um, that demand. And, and so uh, what I'm saying is that blockchain, Bitcoin cannot do what it wants to do to do with certain very specific financial operations. It cannot do those without philosophical claim of absolutely immense historical consequence. That, and that claim is granted any faculty that is available to the human subject for uh, or to serve as an ontological criteria. That any, any, any human decision about the nature or reality of functioning structure of being is now downstream, virtually downstream of the blockchain. Um, so I think rather than uh, rather than just pushy, pushing on with greater and greater theatrical emphasis on this on this point, it would be better to get people um, to poke at what they think are the most unsustainable or implausible parts of this claim and and from there. Uh, it, I got a couple of questions. Oh, me oh, too. Go ahead. No, you first. No, no, no. You go. My my question is more sort of like, uh, I can understand. Th thanks to this amazing seminar, the implications of Bitcoin for, say, for economy, political economy, for geopolitics, for philosophy. But say when Nick Nick talked about how this will even kind of like has to or will spread to like sciences or natural sciences. I just that's where I stop and I go like, okay, how but but how would it how would it go there? And then what will be what will be the implications of it affecting the way natural sciences do their job? Yes. No, it's great. I, th I hope we can sort of really pick at this because it's like crucial and, and I think it's an underexplored 
area, obviously, because people look at Bitcoin as a primarily financial innovation, which in some respects it is. But I think you have to say, well, what? Look at the way science works as an institution. And how it works as an institution is that there have to be scientific statements that are ex that that one is expected to trust and one isn't expected to trust them naively there are a whole series of institutional mechanisms that are supposed to reinforce that trust to do with the reproducible nature of experiments to do with peer review um, uh, I, uh, the whole notion of kind of experimental verification or if we want to be preparing falsification of scientific claims the, but the bottom line with all of this and all of this institutional machinery is there are scientific statements that appeal to that demand or claim trust now as soon as we say that then we're talking about something that is ready for the blockchain because the blockchain is a trust machine is the first it's the huge innovation with the blockchain is that all previous cultural institutions consume trust rather than producing it that they actually uh, they assume in some way that there are there is some or existing cultural machinery that that allows trust to be uh, manufactured beyond the beyond the the stage of that institution itself. And given trust, we can do X, Y, and Z. And so you get these statements, as I say, like the one I've already said from the City of London, far from an arbitrary one, an absolutely, I think, um, epitome. Uh, where it says my word is my bond that's what they say because they know that you have to trust them and they say we have to trust us we're trustworthy honest gov you know that's what it basically boils down to um, and the Bitcoin in contrast says you don't you don't have to trust us at all you know the whole point of this is to get rid of trust um, this machinery you can look at it it's open source don't trust us look at it it's all the software is all open source it's all free to be examined everything that happens on the blockchain is publicly recorded in the ledger you can look at it if you don't believe that everything is being publicly recorded you go back to the open source software you look at it you can see that in fact it has to be publicly recorded um, so it's not asking for trust at all it's saying you know after you've finished skeptically examining this then you can see that this machinery is producing rather than consuming trust that's what it means by being called trustless so so say uh, scientific papers no longer no longer need the validity of a, a reputable journal for them to be to be considered more valid they can just be a paper and don't rely I'm sorry, on sorry I lost you Mo there I'm saying I'm saying fine say uh, scientific research yeah. papers that are being published no longer need to rely 
heavily on the brand name of the journal that published them. Also, the way the footnote system and reference would work would be completely revolutionized, in which you basically almost don't have to give any reference because the references are just built into the essay or into the paper in a way like so you don't have to put numbers and and so sort of like pass on I mean I mean that that's that's what I'm sort of like on a surface level getting yeah. at right? look the, the mechanics obviously complicated for this but but the, the basic point you're making is I think absolutely indisputable in that the the transfer of of the scientific model onto the blockchain we will expect as we've seen the systematic eradication of quote for the umpteenth time trusted third parties now in the in the scientific enterprise those what are those trusted third parties you've already started enumerating them there's certain journals there's certain names there's certain um, accumulations of credibility this yeah, course, academic uh, brands absolutely absolutely and so blockchaining this would require that um, the there is a direct peer-to-peer -peer route for a claim to be made between anybody within the whole system and anybody else within the whole system that is publicly recorded on the ledger that cannot be retracted and that does not pass through a trusted third party to produce its its credibility so so if I may uh, jump in here on, on yes yeah, sure point. Um, <clears throat> so for example um, uh, in a uh, in say a medical journal, someone is studying uh, antihypertensive A versus antihypertensive B, and they've found that A is not only non-inferior to B, it may in fact have greater effects on survival. Rather than submitting it to the standard peer review process of, of say, the Lancet or or some other journal, uh, this could actually be uh, published. Uh, via the blockchain process verif verified and and the trust of the veracity of these findings would be generated with without that sort of institutional um, uh, chain of command is, is, but, is that yeah, what I'm yeah. understanding this is important and and Harry, Harry Harry is a medical practitioner actually so he's right. kind of like he comes from he comes from the world of science but I think it also yes. means that it also means that it it does not need the third party because somehow the research upon this it claims is made is readily built into the blockchain already. So all, right. sorts, of, all sorts of data or like or like previous experiments themselves are there, so you don't need to go through the third party uh, verification or, or 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 at least that's how I I I'm reading it which could be wrong. Well, I think this is a very interesting point because if we're, if, if we're using blockchain, in order to get the, the funding for the study itself, that could be something that could be generated through a Bitcoin-like uh, system. I mean, this, this, this whole idea we're talking about is something that could revolutionize uh, uh, this sort of studying and, and science and all of that, at, at least in, in this in this domain, 
that I'm more familiar with. So th this is a very intriguing idea, Mohammed. I I I think yes. I mean, touched... go ahead. No, no, no. You no. Sorry. I no, I, I was just wrapping that up. It, it's it's okay. I, I had nothing uh, more to say really on that. I mean, obviously, the actual specific mechanics of this will be will be packaged in a form that we can predict, which is that the, the this suffix coin now is the way that someone produces a, a set of signs to show that something some particular institution has been placed onto a blockchain system. So you know, in a in the in the medical sense, we would have, you know, uh, whatever, medic coin or whatever it would be. And it would be some uh, blockchain-based system that, that is able to generate a circulation of trusted information um, within the blockchain um, um, and the, the coins which a coin is becoming an extremely abstract thing. A coin is basically just a unit of trust that is produced it produced on this thing. And so the credibility of a particular kind of scientific discourse or a certain scientific hypothesis even would no longer be something that would be based on appeal to some higher tribunal, but would be intrinsically represented by the currency of this particular system of coinage. And what it what it means a coinage in this sense just means this Bitcoin circulation, and the so the so the value of the of the system and the credibility of the system are exactly the same. Um, and if something is functioning as you know within a, a for instance a medical circle of doctors engaging in certain thing and passing information between themselves, then they will have this vibrant economy in enumerated within a particular of these blockchain coins and the value of those coins will directly represent the credibility of that information that that is being circulated between them without any higher authority being required to evaluate that information and pass on from on high some judgment about whether that information can or cannot be trusted you can tell them the degree of trust involved is directly uh, is directly manifested by the economy by the coins um, so that is how any kind of blockchain system will work um, I, I, I'm not going to get into a huge thing but the, the the intervening stage that is already well underway with this is to do with um, property title of all kinds so the particular types of coin are involved to, to we've already seen I think last week about the authenticity of a work of art so these are already developed types of coins that you know they circulate in order to show that a particular work of art is what it claims to be and is not a forgery or has not recently in some mysterious way appeared it on the art market or more straightforward things to do with say this is in fact my car or this is in fact my house or various other things that you would want to sort of lay claim to in the in the physical world so when you're making those sort of claims when you're uh, saying 
the, we, we can see the system is already processing the digest. Well, 100% for sure, this is my car. You're already only technically distanced for saying this is um, this is for sure the data that has come out of this particular piece of research. It's a signature. It's a, a coin is a set of signatures that just authorize fact. You know, I have seen this output from a particular machine. Uh, I have seen this particular set of figures coming out of a scientific study. Um, and that that is then material that is circulated on the blockchain exactly the same as a claim to a particular uh, title on a, on, a, on a piece of stuff in the world. Isn't this not so much a, an actual kind of technology of verification? Um, I mean, I can see how this is really useful and important in stripping ideology out of scientific truth. Um, but doesn't the verification of the truth have to happen outside of the blockchain anyway before its documentation as truth is locked into place? Um, and we still don't get out of that problem of the fact that there's a very um, imperfect verification system going on which has to run through culture in order to um, to become truth. And then we're just going to log it. Like I, I can see its use as a referencing system, um, but surely it's it's just documentation. And secondly, um, isn't the whole kind of I mean, what if we logged the the um, the truth that the world is flat, you know, or the Earth, uh, the, the the whole solar system revolves around Earth um, years ago? What do we do in order to to um, manifest skepticism or to recreate our edifice of knowledge or or whatever? Um, yeah, that, well, that, I that, think that was one of my questions. Yeah, the manifestation of skepticism is implicit in the fact that the, in the, of the value of the coins. So, like, if there was flat Earth coin kicking around, um, would not have a question about is the Earth flat or not, independent of the uh, vitality of the um, now I I can only assume that flat earth coin would be you know without just punning for the sake of it flatlining right now um, and you know if if it w if it wasn't flatlining if it wasn't flatlining because the, the bottom line of the of anything based on On a, in the, this nest. So that when something is validated is that the majority of computing power applied to the system accepts this as being valid. And so when I when some I, I make sort of extreme claims to blockchain as ultimate criterion, it's to say you are not going to find a superior epistemological test than a, a sort of mature Nakamoto consensus. If you can say um, 
that, you know, uh, I know the Earth isn't flat, but the majority of the Earth's computing power thinks that the Earth is flat, then I think, I agree, you're lost, you know. You're lost, and, and the power would just be running us somewhere bad. But I think that the, the blockchain bet is the fact that you can't, there is simply no more reliable criterion than what the majority of computing power applied to the system is going to accept as real. Right, but I mean... It, so this is the question. Oh, sorry. No, go, 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 go. Oh, okay. So it seems... Can I just seems like the fundamental, you know, the issue is that of, um, of revision. So instead of the Earth is flat, let's say, um, you know, um, Vioxx is a safe medicine. So you have a Vioxx coin out there that says that Vioxx, you know, stops heart attacks and isn't going to cause you to stroke out. And then right. sometime later, and say that, you know, some loosely the way this protocol worked is that everybody involved in the Vioxx clinical testing is a signa is a signed party to the Vioxx coins, you know, cryptographically secure their identities, all that sort of thing. And later on, they report that they have had strokes, that some of them have had heart attacks anyway, etc. So you have to have a mechanism of revising the knowledge after the fact. So you have to have certain, I mean, you have to have some kind of attached atemporal structured statements that can be revised. And then you have the question of what happens to those Viox coins. I mean, are they devalued? And then, I mean, I guess the idea is that they're, you know, if they are, if they are devalued by this change in conclusions, then, you know, MetaCoin in general, you know, we lose a certain amount of confidence or, you know, an FDA coin or something like that. And so it loses value. But it seems like, I don't know, that's, that's a process that has to involve something besides the blockchain structure as we know it itself, and also something that has to dramatically differ between human sciences, where your parties are both human sub study subjects and scientists, versus like physics, where it's, you know, new faster than light neutrino coin, you know, for example. And maybe, I don't know, I've been reading um, the blockchain thinking, and it seems like maybe the solution here is that we have machines, like, you know, the machines that we use for hard science experiments as parties, signing parties to transactions. That whole, she's talking about, you know, the Internet of Things being enabled. Right. Yeah, blockchain, right. machines exchanging tokens and so forth. Yeah, yeah. It seems like that has to play a part, necessarily, in episode. I, I, I think that is one extremely interesting avenue for this for sure because you want to get hard data coined up on blockchains as as raw as possible I would have thought that that's that's for sure but but it's let's explore this whole Vioxx thing or whatever I mean we can use yeah. any any example I mean the stops you to making some claim about Vioxx um, and then somewhere down the line saying, oh, that's not what I meant, or, you know, or I'm being misrepresented, or, um, you know, an attempt to preserve credibility in the uh, face of a, a kind of outcome that completely uh, destroys credibility. You know that is impossible on the blockchain. It's like if if you if you 
produce a certain set of results and it's attached with a certain sort of uh, uh, set of identities um, that are operating within that system, those identities are then attached absolutely irreversibly to those particular set of uh, commitments that are that are made. Which in the case so, of something like that would be statistical commitments basically, that these these measured results support this statistical this conclusion with a certain amount of confidence and it seems like yes no be, look yeah I, I I'm I'm assuming that what you'd want to do is encourage an evolutionary process in exactly well, the direction well, that you're this, saying that, this is the diff, this is what I was gonna say sorry I'm jumping in Nick but I was gonna no, like sure to, sure sure before Jake the, the thing is what you end up happening is like never-ending experiments that a, a process of eternal data collection on a problem yeah. that's constantly generating generating and expanding the the sort of like the sample rate or like whatever you call of the of the of the whatever the question it was that was put to test, right? Yeah, exactly. With, with Vioxx, if you're looking at, you know, people's continuing health records over time, and so there's this constant, like, you know, what percentage of these people longitudinally are developing the, the condition that the medicine was created with claimed to be able to treat, who's manifesting side effects. So that seems to be, like, exactly where this is merging with the question of datafication. And so if we're all constantly generating this stream of health data from our bodies because of these, you know, biosensors yeah, exactly. and so forth, and but that's that connected itself, to studies we've been participants in, and that's constantly feeding into the blockchain, is the, I guess is the idea. But this only works, yes. it's a whole ecosystem. But yes. isn't that itself already a form of like, form of a computing power also that has to kind of like, whether it's Internet of Things or like receptors in your body or wherever, that's, that's like translating this, this, this like, Reality into into a data stream and and providing and in fact, in fact, the more the more Vioxx is is discredited in a short term, that in a long term the coin will be actually more credible because it's constantly being sort of like it's constantly being verified or not. It's not constantly being verified. It's constantly being like. That's interesting. Yeah, exactly. That like yeah. the revision rate. You know, there's an optimal revision rate for the growing value of the currency. If it's too low, the currency is also valueless because not enough is happening on this blockchain. Old conclusions aren't being changed by new. Yeah, totally. And you know, in, you know, with, so your, with the regular scientific test, you have like the, the the experiment like set set its like scale and its limits. They do it and then they publish it and then for ten years, people will refer to that very small or particular set of like questions or tests and then until somebody comes and goes like oh that was wrong actually this is causing this and that you know what I mean and then then you have like an update of knowledge right whereas with this what you have is like it just constantly updating itself so uh, uh, Mo to, to you know further riff on the point you were making uh, we're now getting to the point where uh, big data is being generated with regard to uh, health parameters, say, you know, in, in, in the in, in medical care. So uh, entire dynamics of population health, uh, rates of obesity, regional rates of obesity versus other regions, uh, blood pressure, blood sugar control, all of those things. We now we're now developing sensors. Uh, in wearable technology that can upload those uh, data points 
and uh, we we were discussing yesterday in uh, uh, Nick Shrinichek's, uh, uh paper on on uh, cunning automata. The the speed at which these data are transmitted in financial networks, we can now assume that algorithmic power is going to be necessary for real time monitoring of, for example, population health, uh, statistical production within scientific studies, those sorts of things. So I th I think if if I'm understanding this conversation correctly, that's the direction we're moving, and also to a, a more uh, democratized form of, of of analytics rather than those being the 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 wheelhouse of say specific universities or or research groups that this the, these data would be more democratized i don't know uh, any other thoughts on that i mean this language of democracy is complicated because i mean what we're talking about is the is the power in the system goes to the predominant computing power applied to the system and so I mean people can or cannot you know I can see why people would see that as democratizing or anti-democratizing there's a lot of room for political maneuvering and and, and strategies for sure but what is is that these traditional uh, institutions of credibility are subtracted systematically from the system and and that their previous function is supplanted by Nakamoto consensus is just the fact that the blockchain has to update itself in such a way that is consistent that has no double spending problem and double spending problem as we've seen in the past extremely wide uh, means basically that there is no abuse of signs taking place in this regime. So um, I think the implicit claim here is that if you have a combination of data feeds onto the blockchain combined with the Nakamoto consensus selection mechanism, you can ex you can eliminate all of the existing apparatus of um, institutional credibility that is involved in these fields. So, yeah, for sure, I, I mean, people can and are saying that that's democratizing. I, I, I'm also sympathetic to people who, who would be concerned about what it is that is making these decisions. So really, the the process of democratization may not even be irrelevant. It, it may become irrelevant through these processes, archaic, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's the power is going towards that. If if you want any agency wants to have ontological power to decide what is real, and that and the blockchain is their channel for that then the route to that is by uh, accumulating computing power and the computing power will not do what you ask it to do it will simply decide the Nakamoto consensus on its um, 
but I mean, as we've said, in power is is almost a euphemism for capital. It becomes commoditized and standardized, and the technologies here become more um, mature. Then that becomes ever truer. It seems like that seems like an one aspect of a more general way that if anything is is seizing ontological power or there's any spreading of ontological power, it is it seems from from humans to machines. So we talk about you, know, you talk about how this reality criterion supersedes anything that you know the human subject can appeal to, but it seems to me almost more like it represents machines excluding those sources of human verification that machines themselves don't have access to or are, or are specifically are human privileged so that the, there's a final reality criterion that... that absolutely. Uh, That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, well, sorry, no, um, whether it's the autonomy of smart contracts of software entities that can't be contested by humans saying, you know, no, 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 wait, tear up the paper, black out the signatures, like this is done, we're not actually doing this, or whether it's, um, or whether with this sort of data thing, whether it's in terms of not being able to appeal to a fact like, hey, I'm a human standing here, look, the world isn't fucking flat, and the, and the machine says, you know, unless, like, machines have registered data, which according to machine protocol algorithm says that that is the case, you can't make that phenomenological appeal. Yeah. So it's not just an, on, you know, an ontological, yeah, no, that's, but also a machine ontology. That, that's crucial, though. Absolutely crucial. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely crucial. Like, I think the notion that there is some human access to reality that is has leverage over the Nakamoto consensus is the question. And this is one, it's not one that I would like us to resolve now because I think this is going to be, this is going to be this huge argument that breaks out in society as this stuff develops. Um, the natural thing is, of course, to think, well, you know, we somehow know what is or is not real. Why are we listening to the machines, i.e., as mediated through the Nakamoto consensus. Why do we care what they think? And the question for sure is, well, what really, what is our access to reality? That pit, like, let's of legalistically and formally and in, into a sort of, you know, uh, us against the machines, what are we saying? we are able to do or what access is it that we have that we are pitting against this machine consensus um, this is and I think the whole Bitcoin phenomenon is that we just don't have anything that finally we're a busted flush in this and there's no you know that w there's no way that we have an authoritative access to reality that we can persuasively uh, counterpose to what the Nakamoto consensus says is the reality of any situation that has been blockchained. Well, it seems like that's just all a question of data, you know, of the given and of understanding our sensory datum and the machine's datum as 
you know, as coming from a common base. And so how do we weigh two different kinds of entered data? And if we view ourselves, I mean, we have to view ourselves as machines just to get, in order to begin answering this question in a way that isn't arbitrary. But I think, but I think part of that is already being, being slowly, like, eroded because in terms of, like, a human, global human worldview, we're moving towards people more and more realizing that their own data collection ways, the historical ways in which human phenomenological relationship to the world has built, built our understanding is eroding. So, and, and people are more and more are, are understanding that, that the machine's ability, the network machine's ability to do this work is much more actually reliable and much more complex in terms of like telescoping this data or like or overlay, overlaying it for different yeah. kinds of like truth extraction or like whatever whatever the right word is, right? Right, it's legibility. I mean, these mountains of data are not human readable. That's the essential problem. It's too much. We produce, no, we ourselves produce more information than we're capable of analyzing. That, that I have to say, and I'll, I'll put an objection here, that I, don't, I think this trend of the conversation now to say this is just about data is not right. I mean, yeah. you know, the, 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 the blockchain, when it, the blockchain validates a block, I don't think it's talking about data primarily. It's not. It's talking about the fact that this, um, this set of transactions on, have not been double spent. That their original, what, what's being validated is not a certain quantity of data. It's a, it's a set of commitments. Um, and so, of course, data comes into this. I'm not saying data is irrelevant, but, but it's not, data is not a good stand-in for the thing that's at stake here and, or what the blockchain is doing. When the blockchain edits out all realities in which double spending has happened, it's not because the blockchain is able to manage data better than humans or any, any of these things. It's because the blockchain cannot engage in duplicity. And you can see that the blockchain cannot be duplicitous no, by engineering, by software engineering. You know, the open source thing is there. Duplicity is impossible on the blockchain. We know it's not impossible for us, and that's the difference. It's not that it's not a difference of data versus something else. Well, is that? I mean, if we take data as not just meaning like quantitative, you know, like binary input, right. but as datum, right. as the given, right? Isn't that isn't that precisely saying that the transactions right. given in and to the blockchain yeah, are, yeah. Are, are a raw and atomic given, right? Okay, so I, I think that's that's great. No, that is great. That's great. And I think if we're prepared to rethink fundamentally what we think data is, then absolutely, I will then. Turn around 180 degrees and and sign onto onto this. Yeah, um, no. that that's absolutely what's happening. Nick, Nick, I was gonna make another provocation, which is you know, the way in which the word and the concept of algorithm has entered sort of like the culture, and now I'm using culture the way Amy uses the word culture, right? Culture is sort of like there's a problem with it, which is. Is a stand-in for human or a stand-in for for human intelligence, right? Which is going to mediate or somehow still sort of. I mean, it doesn't say directly that that's what it is, but most of the time when people provoke or sorry invoke algorithm, what they're really trying to point to are the smart human programmers 
who are writing these things, right? And I think with the with this hypothetical move to Bitcoin, actually there will be a de deflating or de-emphasization of algorithm, of that type of what algorithm means, right? It has to, because you know what I mean, and especially the way sort of like right. you know like Nick and Alex talk about algorithms in um, like algorithms in in uh, cunning automata. Sometimes I feel like they're also kind of use it in that sense. It's like a, it's like a it's like a ghost of the human. Algorithm is a ghost of the man that still tries to sort of like, that's still in charge of the machines. Whereas I think right. what we're discussing here is like, it's like, okay, okay, if you're talking about like cinema, it's, it's the, dif the difference will be, the difference will be between the ex, ex machina and the automata, the two, two movies that came out like right. recently that deal with artificial intelligence. In automata, you're dealing with this very simple machine that's actually very much like Siri on two legs and its development into sort of like an independent type of uh, artificial intelligence and then in ex, ex Machina which you're dealing with this like trauma of the machine not being fully accepted by human or, or all this sort of stuff that happens around like the, the, the humans are still sort of like the, the masters. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's 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 interesting how little algorithm comes up in this Bitcoin discussion, isn't it? It's a word we've hardly used over the last eight weeks. Uh, the the word that stands in for it is protocol, and protocol, interestingly, is at least as much on the economic side as it is on the technical side. I mean, it's a protocol in the sense it's a piece of software, but it's also a protocol in the sense it's a certain kind of um, economic arrangement. And I think, I mean, my worry about, about over-investing the language of algorithms is that it sounds as if you're involved in something that is purely technical in a, in a way that can be stood over against something else. Um, I think that why this language that has already emerged and established itself of a protocol is one that seems to me much more satisfactory is that when talking about the commercial and economic and um, contractual side of Bitcoin it seems completely natural to be also using the same language that the, 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 the Bitcoin protocol is a piece of um, um, social direction as much as it's a piece of technical uh, code. Um, so I don't know, it's interesting. Yeah. I had a question about going back to the beginning, basically when I was saying that the, that the blockchain a works as an ultimate ontological criterion, right? Yes. So, my question was like, maybe I even asked this question already, I don't remember. Like, what about the fact that this ultimate criterion or ontological criterion comes from a monetary technology? Does it say anything, like, about reality? This, the, the, the structure... Right. In a way, the, the, operative, the operative logic to validate reality 
comes from an economic mode of evaluation. Yes. I do, I'm sure that there's you can dig very deeply into this question. So I certainly don't want to kind of shut it down by whatever I say about it. I mean, it, it's tied up with this question about what is happening semiotically with this new uses of word coin. You know, one of the things that I think we've hardly seen yet, but we're going to see hugely, is that the word coin is going to totally change its sense. You know, and the old sense of coin to do with bits of metal circulating around as cash is going to seem like archaic and quaint and a bit irrelevant. And, and a coin is going to be something that um, instantiates any system of exchange on a blockchain. And the reason to bring that up is I think that when we talk about a monetary technology, initially for sure, and I'm, I'm, I have no doubt there are good reasons for that and also reasons that are questionable in all kinds of ways, Bitcoin begins as a monetary technology in a narrow sense um, and that's its latch and that's its attempt to kind of immediately motivate people and, and obviously economics is the primary zone of incentives. So if you want to motivate people uh, you go economic automatically. You know, I mean, every other way of trying to kind of guide or engineer or organize people's motives is either, it, it seems to be in some sense regressive in relation to the economic mode. You know, you can threaten them with guns or you can try and seduce them or whatever, but um, if just in a way that is just a technical and publicly admissible, uh, you want to kind of motivate people in certain directions, you're already involved in an economic um, in an economic question. But I think even though Bitcoin starts off as an economic technology in this narrow sense, um, what it does is actually means that we realize we don't even understand what money is. Um, and you know that that a coin becomes a question mark. It becomes like, what can we turn into coins? When we turn something into coins, there is a, and I don't want to dismiss this because I think it could be developed very interestingly. But ultimately, I'm skeptical. There is a kind of immediate possibility of a certain left-wing argument that when you slap a coin suffix on something, what you're doing is economizing it in a way that we understand you know, you're reducing something to the economy and you've got all these different types of coin and what you're doing is simply reducing them to some understood substrate of economic activity. I, I don't think that is right, even though, as I say, I'm sure it can be developed in a very interesting way. I think it's much more that we don't know what a coin is. We don't know what money is. And, you know, Bitcoin is... Bitcoin is going to make all our previous understanding of what money is completely obsolete. We're going to see it as the prehistory of Bitcoin. It's going to be seen as the first money that actually understands itself and is kind of conceptually lucid. Um, and it's going to do all of this other stuff. Um, so that's my sort of response to that. I, I, I think yeah, it's monetary, but but it turns it turns money into a question. 
Yeah, that kind of links perfectly into something I was thinking about earlier, which was um, Bitcoin's Bitcoin as being, as this token which has you know an empty but positive value, or it acquires values as it can be traded for more things. You know, in the sense that the copula um, once sort of like reified or turned back and looked at can you know, um, can stand in for all different kinds of reality relations or, or differentials between what is and what isn't and so forth. And then on the other hand, also what I've been trying to wrap my head around for just the past 20 minutes or so, which is in one of these epistemic blockchains, you know, what would you be compensating and what would determine the value of these coins? You know, are you compensating participation, contribution of data, the processing of, of verification of these data or, you know, how they relate to previous conclusions and invalidate or support them or whatever. And yeah, it, it definitely seems as if coin is just becoming this is becoming a question mark. So like, you know, medical data question mark is this valid data? Um, I don't know. Yeah, but certainly that epistemic yeah. blockchains would have to have more than one kind of coin because you know more than one level of question as to the validity of a scientific conclusion claimed to be registered to the chains. Um, and that it does seem to be standing in for the circulation of the of ta'an, you know, uh, of the being of things, and of the differentiation yeah. of more and more ontic regions, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a, a one sort of whole zone on this is the relationship. What what is the relationship between ontology and trust? Um, because the, the most direct route into uh, uh, the blockchaining of anything is that if there's a trust problem involved the blockchain is already trying to get in at this point and, uh, and obviously it seems to me that there has to be there has to be a relationship between these two things that's to say that that trust must be an ontological problem at some level it's you know it's th that what is what is real what is being are all things that um, um, introduce a question of credibility of of the, the at some level that this is something that you have to uh, you have to accept and when I say you have to accept it's not that you have to accept to say just to try and close down a question and say, um, you know, we just have to accept it. It's to say that to carry on, there is a there is a continual acceptance taking place, and therefore you might want it to be formally automated in a in a way that doesn't depend upon certain traditional institutions. Um, that given, given that there is going to be a necessity, that there is an economic requirement for reproduction of trust to take place all the time, that, you know, just in this, you know, everything that isn't Peronian skepticism, everything that isn't, you know, I have no idea whether if I step into this traffic stream or I step off this cliff or I... Um, stick this shotgun in my mouth and pull the trigger. I have no way of knowing one way or the other whether this is going to harm me or, or not harm me or something I want to do or something I not to do. If you're in this totally Peronian state, 
um, uh, where people say he was being steered around by his friends because he was in such a state of pure skeptical uh, refusal to to lend credence to anything that 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 didn't deserve it, and he would simply have stepped off a cliff if, if his buddies hadn't say you know tugged him the other way. If you're not in that Peronian state, and I'm going to assume hypothetically that no one is, then there's this trust economy that you're involved in all the time anyway. And so when you get onto these medical questions of the kind that Harry has kind of been introducing, you know, it's easy to say, okay, it would be kind of mad to step off a cliff because you you don't know really whether you can trust that your perceptions are accurate or whether the scientific principles of gravity and the properties of falling bodies can be trusted or not. You know, it seems simple. But when you'll get into a whole set of things to do with lifestyle and diet and, you know, things of high medical consequence, of course people are trusting in things that are far more controversial and open to dispute and you know have total life and death consequences but are deep in these this jungle of unresolved trust issues and that's why it seems to me the blockchain is already got its foot in the door you know, it's it's no good saying, well, we just don't need trust. Obviously, we do. We're using it all the time. And it's no good saying it's the status quo is, is acceptable. I think that, you know, um, maybe people can or cannot accept it, but it's certainly they're not making life or death issues on the basis of philosophically rigorous foundations. So there is an appeal to a criterion implicitly. Why do we... You know what is our machinery of trust here? There's a there's already a machinery of trust. It's just an informal one, and blockchain is saying, well, let's formalise that. Let's actually work out what people are doing here and be rigorous about it, and then test commercially. And this is commercially in the same sense as money earlier. Commercially just meaning in a sense that is being sociologically validated. Um, so let's let's validate these systems of trust that we're already engaged in all the time and and kill people every day one way or the other. I was just going to say or mention briefly that I think there's a striking parallel to um Peirce's system of the continuum and the blockchain uh like through and through from the <clears throat> existential graphs of the the beta cut being a line that's irreversible, like a line that's a point, and then to the greater cuts um, being those of contingency, um, but all being through action-reaction processes, uh, literally blocked or like sedimented in this continuum, um, and so you could think of a I think Bitcoin exchange as a uh, contingent breach in a sense that is then anchored but it was making me think about um, all this talk of contingency and derivatives you know coming out of IHA's work and Nick and Alex's and uh, Sohail's 
um, as something that it's just a different beast. You know, I don't know how it, that could be registered, but but I think the parallel is very interesting with the versus system. I just wanted to share that. I don't know if anyone else thought that. It's not like I disagree, but I'm afraid my just purchase on Pierce is not up to me making a kind of um, even plausibly productive response to that. So I would just have to go and look at it. Uh, yeah, um, check it out. It's cool. Look at mine. No more. Sorry, not to interrupt, but I uh, I have to go to work, guys. Unfortunately, I couldn't negotiate any going in any later than this. So this is my this is my last hurrah. Goodbye. It was okay. good, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Cool. Great. Well, um, yeah. Well, I think we need to be in touch at some point. So, but you, everyone oh. can. There were channels of communication, aren't there? So. Yes, and the classroom is there. We're not going to close the classroom, and everybody who was. Uh, in, in the class, whether like uh, enrolled or audit or members who showed interest will all have access to classroom, so as you, Nick, for that's okay. our own blockchain. We have, we have like a small. <laughs> so. Okay. Enjoy work, Jake, for sure. Ha, and you kidding me? It's Mother's Day. Fuck this shit. Goodbye, guys. Bye. Thanks. Okay. Well, I guess I raised that because if this ontological system, as you put it, is as tight and trustworthy as I would agree it seems to be, um, what what could be a contingent discontinuity for it? You know, I, I, I mean, uh, we saw how what's it called crashed, um, but but I, but you know, um, what what threats do you potentially see? I, I think this we could definitely get onto this stuff, and as we know, it's already there in the Bitcoin paper. This discussion, this security question. There's a whole. This is also something we haven't. It's come up a few times, but if we could have run this whole course as a as a course about security for sure, it's huge. But I, I just have to say, I'm not at all wanting to say it's trustworthy. I want to say only that it's ultimately trustworthy in the sense there is no higher, there is no superior tribunal of trustworthiness that we can appeal to. So, so it's like if you don't trust the Nakamoto consensus, there is no way you can run to that is credibly superior in, it, in its, you know, there is no salvation. If you're going to go into a kind of a Heidegger mode of only a god can save us. You know, there is there is nothing that you're going to find that is going to give you leverage on the Nakamoto consensus. So that's my stance on that. And I think anyone who pushed anything harder than that it, it goes into snake oil territory quite fast. And obviously, some of the Bitcoin stuff does that to say you just shouldn't. Worry about it, of course, it's totally fine. There's nothing that you can imagine going wrong. Boom, 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 boom. 
that seems to me to get it completely wrong. And the the whole point of this is it comes out of critique, and it's all that is left after you have engaged in systematic critique of these trusted third-party institutions that have up to this point asked us to trust them. And Bitcoin says, don't trust any of those guys. You know, they are inferior to the Nakamoto consensus as a trust machine. And I think that that's, for me, it. You take one step further beyond that and you are, as I say then, you're trying to you're trying to sell some belief to people that is goes beyond what is credibly supported by the technology <coughs> can I just say that law at some point posts this thing no one knows what a coin can do can I just say that is just like absolutely what this out as far as I am, I'm just randomly requoting it. I mean, that's totally right. That's totally right. That's it. That's what. If if you know, I'm not trying to steal it. Um, although I have used a sentence almost exactly the same actually in this book that's coming out. But it's like this is that this is what this course is about, as far as I'm concerned, for sure. Um, and um, it's totally right. You know, like the the question of art has come up a few times as an as an example or like a good example, a bad example of Bitcoin. But but I think just like we just like how we talked about um, the implications of Bitcoin for 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 say medical science or for other fields, I think there's more to how a Bitcoin kind of like a Bitcoin a Bitcoin approach can um, transform. Artistic production and like change the way change the way art is received, exchanged, understood in the art world, and then and then as a sort of like a trickle down outside of the art world. One of the yes. smallest examples I can provide, smallest would be would be would be. Uh, Will be a Bitcoin-style registry system for the works of art by by artists to be registered. So if it's not registered, it's not even art. It doesn't yeah. matter how many people can say that. Oh no, that was actually like that famous artist who made it. I was there right. in the studio. I saw it. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If, if the work does not get registered, it just it. So basically, yeah. it, it can eliminate the possibility of any fakes entering the system yeah. because because somehow yeah. it's, it's verified through through this form of like. Machinic or human mediated registry, you know what I mean? Yeah. And a no, robot, if, if you'd, if you'd done that three months ago, Mo, you, you'd now be a multimillionaire. But I'm afraid, I think you missed the boat. You missed the boat on your art registry use of the blockchain. So you, you, fortune will have to come from another direction. But yeah, that's totally right. Totally right. Yeah. Yeah. But go on, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So let's go to number two because that's what your first example absolutely is going to happen and is being implemented at this minute. 
But you know, you know, another thing about about money that we never we never sort of like uh, discussed is that, and this is some some conviction that's been with me. It doesn't come from reading political economy, or doesn't come from reading like about like history of money. Is that is that the reason why we'll never get rid of cash is because cash allows for a certain level of um, criminal activity to be built into the underground of any system. If you eliminate cash, then in a way you're eliminating a lot of like uh, a lot of illegal illegal economic activity because if everything was based on sort of like credit card system, yeah, everything would yeah. be registered, right? So then yeah. you can't like you can't like th there's no app to order your cocaine. You know yeah. what I mean? That charges Absolutely. your PayPal. But totally. but but the anonymity of Bitcoin actually could allow for both legal and and illegal economic activity to coexist, yeah. right? Am I yeah. wrong? No, no, you're totally right. And that's why it says in the, the title when the, the the title as we know of the Bitcoin paper is the first definition of Bitcoin that we have, a peer to peer electronic cash system. Um, and then so the, and cash doing exactly what you're saying and um, and obviously then the first sort of theatrical history of this being uh, the Silk Road and the fact that the first people to really start getting into this in a big way are people who want to engage in these underground economic um, activities cash cash transactions so there's different ways you this conversation can go obviously for among all the kind of cypherpunk types and and uh, guys who are really attached to this notion of cash the the conversation they want to have is why is the blockchain not stronger uh on as cash you know and they feel in some ways betrayed um they worry that people can actually trace these transactions that the the system doesn't protect anonymity with anything like the seriousness that they had expected it would uh, I guess they still wonder quite how the Silk Road got taken down by the FBI um, so that's one whole line of conversation that you can go in the other I guess or, or one of I mean among several alternatives is is then coming from the other side of people saying well how can we let this innovation unfold if it's going to be a godsend to criminal activity and allow people to engage in all these activities and so the you know what I've been calling the mainstreamer types the Mark Andreessen's and these people have actually been saying um, you know to the powers that be if you go with this you can use the public ledger to actually regularize financial transactions to a huge degree and you will end up loving it and the libertarians will all leave and look for something better so and this is all pitched in a way at a kind of low conceptual level of political economic um, concreteness but, but that won't really be a Bitcoin if that's how it's framed, right? It won't be a true Bitcoin. 
Well, it it's as we've seen. Bitcoin gives up entirely. Bitcoin totally uh, displaces the the line of anonymity. So so that with cash, um, the actual transaction is completely private. Potentially, you know, you go and find your drug dealer, you hand them cash. No one can see that unless there's video cameras on the walls. It's untraceable. The, the banknotes all do have serial numbers on them, but no one's following those numbers around. Um, where every time there's a commercial transaction with a banknote, it remains unregistered. So, you know, you've got some serial number on a banknote. You've got no idea where, as you say, you don't know where it's been with cash. Um, with Bitcoin, it's the opposite. You, you totally know where it's been. Every single moment in which that Bitcoin has passed from A to B, node A to B to C to D, is is recorded on the blockchain. The FBI uh, or NSA or whoever is your paranoid agency of choice can look at the blockchain record without any problems whatsoever and follow a Bitcoin through its entire path from its original genesis in a mining activity through any number of transactions to to its current. Um, wallet. What they cannot know is what the real identities are corresponding to those uh, wallets, to those Bitcoin identities. So anonymity now lies between your Bitcoin avatar, which is a which is an economic agent or wallet existing in the Bitcoin system, and you as a real life person. Real life we can ironize to whatever degree we like. Um, so depending how you look on that, we then get we get then get all of these conversations and, uh, and other ones, you know, like the original implication of the Bitcoin thing is, oh that's totally secure, you know, because your Bitcoin you have a Bitcoin identity an avatar in that Bitcoin system that can then do anything you like and it can't be traced back to you. No one knows who is actually the real person behind this Bitcoin account. And this must be uh, what all the Silk Road guys and everyone involved with them was totally counting on. Um, but unfortunately you can do a lot of forensic work with computers um, and these transactions can, in fact, be traced back to particular computers and particular operations being conducted at particular times and particular ISP addresses and whatever. I mean, um, yeah, I'm not going to try and be an expert on this thing at all. I'm absolutely clearly not. But I think that there was a certain naivety in the original thing about what these... Uh, police, internet police powers could do to reconnect um, Bitcoin transactions to real computers. And then I think once you've got a real computer, then the the jump to a, a, a real life social identity is not a particularly demanding one.
Hey Sunik, you mentioned it before. Um, and I really like this because it answers a lot of my previous questions about the temporality of the blockchain. Um, the complications of time have to be built upon the foundation of um, asymmetrical time or entropic time. So I wanted to ask about um, the time that builds the blockchain. I mean, uh, I'm assuming that you see this as some kind of pocket of neg entropy. And what happens to this um, external time when everything disappears into blockchain temporality? And then how these, I don't know, how you might envision these temporal anomalies that could arise out of blockchain time um, manifesting. I'm just trying to get my head around it a little bit. Yeah. Like, well, the, the I kind of like that, levels of entropy and entropy in this. Right. So, yeah. I think it is, there are so many tempting avenues to explore in this way. Like the, the most straightforward, let me put on my most sensible possible hat. Um, oh. with just the understanding there are some slightly less sensible hats that could be put on instead. The most sensible possible hat would definitely see the whole thing as nested so that your outermost level is the most uh, is in the most deep and unproblematic compliance to thermodynamic normality. That's to say that it's engaged in continuous entropy production. So at this level, at the outermost level, uh, one has a continuous uh, decli decline in order or increase in entropy. Within that, we know already from the whole of the complex dynamics things is that you then have a pocket within that outermost level where you can have anomalous negative entropy production which is then everything is, is life and technology and history and all of this stuff and so when you're saying the blockchain would occur within that then the blockchain is then either part of that pocket or a pocket within that pocket or is somehow nested within a, a kind of entropic cosmic backdrop and so it's, if you then say, as I've been asserting, that it's a kind of ultimate ontological criterion, it's only in the same way that human, that philosophy or some other human cultural institution would have claimed to be an ultimate ontological criterion. It's obviously nested within or um, enveloped within a larger economy that is running in the opposite direction and is not in any way subservient to it. Um, now obviously if you want to then start putting on weirder hats you then get into kind of simulation argument type um, thoughts like um, because everything we know about this outer wider entropic economy is modeled within our narrow, negative, entropic, enveloped economy. And the same with Bitcoin. I mean, what, we're, what is ultimately under production with Bitcoin is a substrate for techno-intelligence serving as the ultimate criterion of 
reality. And its relationship to these, I mean, what it will ultimately think about these kind of simulation uh, dilemmas, I think is a we, something we can only speculate, speculate about quite wildly, isn't it? I mean, um, whatever it thinks about the probability of itself being inside a simulation, I think will ultimately count, uh, given everything that I've already committed myself to, it would have to be taken more seriously than anything we decide now about the probability of that intelligent system being inside a simulation. Cool. Because it's... Have I sort of totally evaded your question? No, I sort of feel I have a bit. Uh, I've taken some elliptical orbit around no, it that's kind of, kind of avoided it. You answered it in just the way I wanted you to, but I, I'm a little bit confused about... Um, so we've got our nested levels of entropy, or negentropy, pockets, nested pockets of negentropy. How do we get from that to the simulation argument? Can you just clarify that a little bit? Because I'm really um, interested in this. Well, I think, okay, how do you get to it? And I mean, I th the easiest way would be simply to retrace the route people have up to this point got to the simulation argument from that. Because, like, you know, Nick Bostrom, who obviously didn't invent the simulation argument, but is by far the most uh, sort of authoritative promoter and popularizer of the simulation argument, I'm assuming, with some confidence, would not call into question really anything that I've just said until we get to the blockchain, of which I've not heard of him make any statement whatsoever. So, um... As far as he's concerned, the whole of human technology um, leading to simulation technologies would be part of a natural history that would naturally take place inside a, an, an entropic cosmos. And he doesn't expect people to think anything else. And yet, at the point where he, he then forces people to raise this dilemma, like, if an advanced simulate an advanced civilization um, survives, values what he calls ancestor simulations, and has the capacity to produce those simulations, then almost certainly we are inside a simulation. Um, so everything that gets to that dilemma has come out of just mainstream, unproblematic, uncontroversial science. There's nothing, he's not asking you to make any assumptions, and now suddenly he asks you to make these three assumptions, or at least these, there, there are these three off-ramps. Um, um, but if you obviously then say, well, we're inside a simulation, our model of the external entropic outer cosmos is completely unreliable. I mean, it's simply it's simply the model with inside inside our simulated reality of the outside of our entropy pocket inside that simulation. But it's not the it's not a model. It's not pretending to be a model, and it couldn't possibly be a model of the of the 
um, entropic outer cosmos embedding our simulation because uh, because that outside the absolute outside isn't modeled at all inside our simulation we don't have a model of it so if you are some thermodynamic cosmologist to tell you about uh, what the universe is like they're not telling you about what's outside our simulation they're telling you about the outside of our pocket of order within our simulation sorry I'm not necessarily being very clear about this but I'm just saying it's not the 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 absolute outside the absolute outside that is transcendentally introduced by the simulation argument is not a theme or a topic that is um, that is identified or that is under any kind of discussion within the natural sciences as they exist within any simulation okay so um, I'm sure I'm being really obscure about this I am I'm trying to be clear but it's it is a slightly it's it's the fact that once you cross over to saying that maybe you're in a simulation then everything that your natural sciences are about is about the inside of that simulation not the outside of that simulation yeah. even though it sounds it's what makes it misleading is it doesn't sound like that because obviously you know you follow follow the argument through again it starts you know start with a natural universe life exists civilization exists it builds simulation it sounds like you're talking about the universe and then you're working your way into talking about simulations but as soon as you cross the line of saying well maybe this is a simulation then those sciences that you were talking about before are no longer anything that you ever had access to within the simulation that you're embedded within I'm just stalling because I'm trying to reconcile the account of um, of technological uh, development that leads to simulation technology as negentropy then being discounted by its ability to simulate its own creation. Um, and I don't know where <laughs> I don't know where I want to take this actually. Um, because it's been something I've been thinking about for a while and I've lost all of my uh, thoughts on it all at once. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I've got like diagrams of it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. no, you you um, could have really helped us out here and, and in fact instead you've had some <laughs> kind of weird brain spasm. I have indeed. I'm kind of sick as well. I'm on like a bunch of medication, which might be part of that. Um, but um, yeah, maybe just let me try and get my thoughts back together on this for a sec. Um, okay, this is a different thought, but isn't isn't then kind of positing Bitcoin as sort of negentropic, uh, or the blockchain as a negentropic? the result of a negentropic process. Um, or protocol. Uh, yeah, whatever. What? I said, yeah, or, or protocol. Continue, I'm interested. Um, 
still then just uh, retreating further and further into the simulation and losing all purchase on the absolute outside. Well, I mean, we have, I, I don't know, we have no purchase absolute outside until we can first envisage the absolute outside. I mean, like if you take the block, the, take the simulation argument as as an example. It's only with the thought, which I agree is, in one sense, extremely archaic. I mean, I'm not saying that that I th I think the simulation argument in its modern form originates with Hans Moravec, and it would be quite wrong to say that that argument was, in any radical sense new, of course. It's like it's a kind of quite reasonable to say as a kind of neo-gnosticism. Um, it's as it's as archaic as human culture as far as we as we know it. But in its modern form and its modern formulation, um, there is no notion of the absolute outside until you get a clear sense of what it is meant by being inside a simulation. And the only way to a rigorous sense of what it is like to be inside a simulation is to follow this line through computer science um, and the actual concrete production of simulation technology to then envisage that our own ontological situation is embedded within a simulation as when we say, what do we mean when we say inside the simulation? If we mean anything at all now, we mean it's inside some kind of computer, computer-run uh, program um, in which um, all the um, all the features of that system are kind of internal characteristics of some program run on side a computer system. Um, and so, sorry, that's the worst ever, most crappy, half-assed definition of simulation probably in the history of human species. But but what I'm trying to say, uh, utterly incompetently, is that, is that there is a kind of very, very sensible, unproblematic, uncontroversial definition of what a computer simulation is. And it's only by getting following step by step in a way that any computer science department would completely accept um, that when Bostrom then says and so we're inside a computer simulation everyone knows what that means you know what what they what they think it means is based upon that very very definite clear sense of what a computer simulation is as ultimately defined by computer science so you can finally you could have a you could have a, a do it out in code in some particular program. You know, we'd be running our program in this particular computer language. We might not know all the details of it, but it's something that, in principle, could could form a a text in the form of a written in a computer language, and and would just sort of at least nominally we'd know 
how to fill all of this in and therefore have a completely concrete, specific understanding of what it meant to say we were inside a computer simulation. Now, so that's the same sense that I think this blockchain thing is being invoked. You, and to, unless you come at this problem through history, it means nothing. Or it means something of such mystical obscurity that you can't get any purchase on it. I mean, we could regress into an old Gnostic language and say, um, you know, or go to kind of India 500 BC or something and say, you know, this is Maya or whatever. This is a this is uh, a dream of Vishnu. Um, you know, there's any kind of language types of language we could say that this is not the true reality and there is an absolute outside that we have no access to because we're inside some particular systematic unreality. What the simulation argument does is it makes that systematic unreality uh, utterly definite and, and, uh, and, and in one sense uncontroversial. Of course you can say of course, you know you can say we're not inside a computer simulation, but you can But it's not controversial what it would mean to be inside a computer simulation. No one can say I don't even understand what you're saying. We could be in a, a computer simulation. Everyone now knows what it would mean to be in a computer simulation. Um, in a way that I don't think is comparable to these other things, like we're inside a fake reality produced by the demiurge. You know, I think if someone said, what the hell do you mean by that? Um, that leads, they could spin out the argument a little bit. But I think if someone said, what the hell do you mean inside a computer simulation? I just don't think that would even get started now. Because we know what a computer simulation is. Um, so I think that's the reason why one takes that route. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna keep thinking on this before I say anything completely silly. Well, no, I would I would <laughs> say something completely silly. Risk it, risk it. No, I went to the thing we'll is I don't know what that thing is. Even though we recorded in cyberspace radio. <laughs> um, I don't know what it is yet, so I I actually can't say it. Um, there are a couple of yeah, I don't know things I like to think out better before I I do throw them into. Cyberspace. Yeah. Power. Yeah. Too late for me to take that line now. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, so if this this ultimate trustworthiness or this irreversibility, you you wouldn't consider this within the realm of entropy, uh, dissipation or or dissemination. You. The, did, did I misunderstand that? What did, did you suggest? It's, it's, it's actually... The reason that Amy is having a kind of brain spasm, and I am also having a brain spasm simultaneously, if not exactly the same one, one that's by some strange entanglement logic connected, is that this is a very odd loop that gets introduced at this point. Because obviously... Ev all the building blocks of thought that get you to this question of mm. simulation are completely consistent with mainstream, common sense 
scientific understanding. Like, there's nothing really problematic about it. There's technical details that are problematic. But in terms of the basic narrative structure, it's utterly uncontroversial and every step people can be basically just pushed along without any prospect of, of serious resistance. And then you get to this point of where you really do cross into what I'll call for shorthand the simulation argument. But when you cross that threshold, everything changes because then the what is your what is your okay, let me just take one step back with this because look at what an entropy argument is about. Mm -hmm. With an entropy argument, there's always something that is the equivalent of um, Boltzmann's value W. That's to say there's the system mm -hmm. that is being defined in terms of its um, um, most expected probability state. And that expected probability state of that system is your baseline of which everything else is then built. So we have the universe which consists of a certain let's just simplify and just deal with particles which is obviously Boltzmann's things, you know, atoms. Mm -hmm. There's a certain number of atoms in the universe and so therefore we have a kind of probability distribution based on all the different ways that those atoms could be arranged. And, you know, the, the sort of um, the max entropy state of that system is one of those uh, that in terms of the macro state of the system are overwhelmingly most probable distributions in which you cannot significantly distinguish these distributions from each other. So, so actually there's a kind of not infinite but massively large number of distributions that are all different but in terms of their macro properties are indistinguishable from each other. That mm. is just a hissing more or less homogeneous distribution of, of atoms in, in space. Mm -hmm. And so when you move towards macro distributions that are um, distinguishable and have certain features you're then moving into greater and greater states of improbability and therefore you have declining entropy. But the declining entropy, all of the kind of calculus of entropy and negative entropy that you're working with is has as its fundamental unit of calculus this, this, this um, value W which is based upon the universe and the and the the existing total number of atoms that exist in the universe, however many quintillion atoms there might be in that universe, and so you're building on that, building on that, building on that, till you get to, you know, our planet within that system, and the fact that the distribution on the planet Earth is very far from homogeneous entropic hiss, and you can put a value on that on that distance and that is the negative neg entropy of our system mm -hmm. and our, our our little local system is um, importing negative entropy and exporting entropy and therefore able to move itself ever further and further away from disorder. Now 
when you then cross, you, so th this is the whole system you've been working with. This is your scientific consensus picture of reality and everything that you're doing in terms of complex dynamics and more and more elaborate, sophisticated models of negative entropy dynamics within sort of evolutionary systems are all in, internal to this. Mm. So the, the outside in this is the, has already been given a value. It's this W. It's the, it's the max entropy state of the universe. You, you follow up this path on Earth, this particular little thread of negative entropy through civilization, technology, com computers, simulation technologies, through to bang this threshold where you've then got the simulation argument. But at that point, where you then say this hypothesis, this is a simulation, mm. the outside of that simulation is not W. It's not Boltzmann's universe of atoms, because that universe of atoms is a particular model within the simulator you're now envisaging. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole universe as was be used to construct your whole argument is now simply internal to the simulation that you're now envisaging. Mm -hmm. So the absolute outside, and by that I just simply mean the outside of whatever is running that simulation, whatever mm -hmm. ultimate substrate that simulation is, which has to be distinguished from the um, thermodynamic substrate that it's materially being run on. So you're not talking about the energy and matter and everything that you're your computers are running on as far as you've understood it up to this point where you cross into the simulation argument. You're talking about now an absolutely external substrate that you don't even, you have no internal representation of at all mm. within your simulation. It's like the, you know, you, this is why it crosses into transcendental philosophy. It's like this Kantian X. It's the thing in itself. You know that this is a this is the appearance of something. This is a phenomenon that is run on something absolutely other, but there's no representation at all of that absolutely other within the system that you're, you have access to. And in fact, instead, you have this fake simulated ultimate reality that is just simply the bedrock um, narrative of relation that you're inside. But so I, I want I have a question about these uh, negative <clears throat> or negentropics because if we understand thermodynamically time as tied to the flow of, of, of energy decay or disorganization right. and we're talking about negentropics, are we talking perhaps about effects on time and eddies in time where potentially uh, processes may even reverse or go through reverse flows of time. Conceptually, I mean, that would, that would yeah. necessarily have to be a part of a negentropic state. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's interesting that Chris and I were just having a conversation about exactly this before and and I would have totally agreed with you on what you're now saying Harry 
what Chris then said to me is, well, do you really want to use the word reversal for this? You know, like it, um, which is, is the word I have used, uh, you know, in terms that I think is extremely close, if not indistinguishable from exactly the way you've said it, in terms of, yes, eddies of time, that a negative entropy uh, trend, strictly speaking, is a reverse time flow. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, so then Chris raised the issue, well, given this whole question about irreversibility um, and sort of the the attempt to actually base ontology on irreversibility, do you really want to say that negentropy is time reversal, uh, which I stalled and said, oh, let's talk about this later in the classroom where everyone else, and now here we are. Um, <laughs> and, and honestly, I think I'm... I'm tormented by this question a little bit because it's there's a strategic element to it, um, yeah, and I'm not had, sure what's the. I had something to say about the about the about the about the simulation argument, which is sort of like a, yeah. like a context. It's like you know, f for the for the philosophical philistine out there who reads this kind of stuff in newspapers or like in Vice magazine and stuff, right? For them, yeah. the and this is because I've had conversations with people who are not really interested in philosophy or think of it as something important. For them, this usually means like the exceptionality of life on the planet Earth compared to the rest of the world outside of Earth, which is just like, you know, like dead. It immediately identified Earth as a simulation, not necessarily. So that's why the... the the mileage that this argument gets usually in the in the popular imagination is because of sort of like exceptionality of the earth, and then easily people like people like like it's the logic sneaks itself through the exceptionality of the earth, and people go like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Earth seems like what we consider earth is a simulation in a larger universe. So you know what I mean? I just wanted to add that as sort of like a qualification for why these things like ha have popular appeal, maybe. For the turbo back to scenes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually, I'm not. I'm. I can't pretend that I absolutely fully got this point, Mo. To be honest, you're you're saying that people say, um, people say the. Uh, what no? Can can you just try to to yeah, people, rephrase that? People people identify with a simulation argument not because they follow all of its ramifications to the end, but because they go like, oh yeah, Earth is so exceptional, probably life on Earth is a simulation. Maybe Earth is a computer. Right. Yeah. I can see different ways people can go with this, like, because it connects up with this, um, with another fascinating chunk of stuff, which is the, uh, all this Fermi paradox, great filter, um, question. Um, Hey, as, uh, sorry, guys. I just need to. I, I just need a one-minute uh, rush to the bathroom. I didn't really get what you were saying, Mo, about the Earth being a simulation. No, no, I'm not saying I don't. I don't think Earth is a simulation. But I'm saying but it. It this. The type of like the simulation argument hijacks the popular imagination because of the Earth's exceptionality to the rest of the 
known or unknown universe. So easily you can say, oh, oh, that's what it is. That's why your life on Earth is so different than the rest of the universe, because it's a simulation. It's not really real. This colorful world with the blue sky and all this is all just... All right, it's going to highlight graphics. Because reality is all like black and like, it's like space. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm sure I missed some occasion uh, there. Don't don't take it seriously. It was just like a footnote. Yeah, but but there is an interesting Sorry. way this works, which is that people try and use it to explain why we seem alone in the universe. Like it's one answer to the uh, this Fermi paradox thing, but um. W they use the simulation argument as an explanation for that, to say that, um, you know, we're not, we're not dealing with other forms of intelligent life in this universe because, because this is a simulation and, you know, it's a simulation that's an experiment or um, study of our particular our particular lineage or or you know we are the the lab animals of this particular simulation and therefore um, it's a mistake to I start, uh, you can bifurcate it in different ways either it's a mistake to to even expect that there's going to be other civilizations accessible the other civilizations aren't out there in space they're out there on the absolute outside um, or you could have a more catastrophist notion that the kind of way that these questions start getting raised is a um, is a crisis in the simulation, and that at the point where um, the simulated civilization starts asking these Fermi paradox types questions, is the time that it starts banging up against the edge of the simulation and the whole thing is beginning to fall apart because um, I wouldn't want to I would want to speculate but I'd want to speculate multiplicitously on this but what but on on one line of this speculation there's something going wrong with the simulation at the point that the simulation starts taking itself seriously as a simulation and the Fermi paradox might be this edge that it bumps again that starts kind of um, derealizing itself as a simulation. But sorry, I've gone a bit far from this, but the point that I was trying to stick to was Mo's point about this thing about the Earth and the special character of the Earth and the fact that this could, you know, Mo's saying, oh, this is like, um, a sad and confused anthropo or terracentric um, error, and I'm sure it can be that, but it can also be something else. Thank you, Nick. So, okay, I, without wanting to preempt the fact that people aren't following this stuff, which is, would be great if they did, but 
I just remind people that everyone ends up writing something for this. Um, I've been sort of talking to the guys uh, involved, our, our masters, our hidden Tibetan masters behind behind this seminar. And so everyone ends up writing something, which of course I'm hugely excited about seeing. So this is a opportunity to talk about that if, if people want to um, and the kind of things that they think they might be doing. While people are putting their but, thoughts together, I have a. I was going to ask a very quick question, on completely unrelated question about how this, uh, what happened? You know, like uh, the CCRU book went online and then it went offline and then it went online again, right? Is it like there was an update or something? Yeah. It went online. Um, I, I okay. I, I think the quickest route, even though it's a little bit boring, is to actually tell the whole story. So I'll tell it really quickly, which is that um, I don't know whether people know this Calibre thing, which is an e-book publishing system. So um, we we the the book was put together in um, in Word, uh, moved onto Calibre. Calibre was translated into this software called AZW3, which is the e-book editing software. Um, and then in that language we did a table of contents. This is the first time our little press has done a table of contents or anything, so we did it. It worked all great and fine. And then we w wanted to upload it to Amazon, but you can't upload an AW AZW3 to file to Amazon. You have to translate it into Mobi. So we went back to Calibre, translated it into Mobi, put the Mobi file up on Amazon. Everything's great except that the Mobi file was it copied off the RTF Word file that was still in the Caliper system, not the AZW3 file. So it didn't copy the table of contents across. So we then had to go back, cut out the Word file from Caliper, actually pointlessly redo the table of contents, which wasn't necessary, but we didn't realize that. Um, and then reload it onto Amazon with the table of contents attached. So that's the whole rather tedious story okay, behind that. I was really confused because I tried to buy it, but then the link was dead. And then I noticed okay. I posted it again. Yes. The one up now, I, I think, as far as I'm concerned, ha is working fine. So... It went um, crazy few... on Facebook for a while, but with the dead link, which was a shame. It got right. sorry it being shared a million times. Yeah, but you still I got don't... you still got one of the top top selling philosophy things on Amazon for like a second there. Which was yeah, funny. for a second. Yeah, for a second. It was a nice second. That second. I will treasure it always. <laughs> yeah. A reversal. <laughs> for one reversed second. So just so you guys know, we have about 15 minutes left of, because we started 20 minutes late, so we have about 15, 16, 17 minutes left of the classroom. If you guys want to utilize this to talk about your papers or ask questions from Nick, go ahead.
Okay, I have a question. I don't know if this is what I'm going to write about, but I, going back to the, I don't know, to this idea that, I don't know, no one knows what a coin can do or, or this, I don't know, potentially this economic logic of reality, would it, would this go back, well, would this relate perhaps to an idea of like a general economy, like, I don't know, going back to Bataille, Derrida, Laruelle as well. So, I don't know, I'm just trying to think through this concept of a general economy and I'm not sure if yes. I completely understand it, but... Yes, I think it's difficult because, I mean, I've obviously now a bit skewed by this conversation that we've just been having with Amy about the simulation argument, but, you know, it really is difficult to hold on to a univocal and uncontroversial notion of a general economy as soon as you have this potential transcendental threshold of simulation involved. Like, you know, it's totally fine if we just carry, if everything that we were talking on with Chris and all of this about, about uh, you know, if you if you can start with Boltzmann's W, if you can start with the universe of atoms, then yeah, you've got your general economy, you know, and you can nest within that, and you have restricted economies uh, within that structure, no problem. But as soon as um, you have these fundamental transcendental catastrophes, even as possibilities, then the notion of a of a general economy, I think, becomes really complicated. I'm not saying impossible, but at least complicated. But for instance, I don't know, like in a way, the idea of like the or like the the, the simulation um, argument somehow made I don't know to me kind of reinforces the idea of a general. If you, I don't know, thinking about it, if if the word or reality is a, somehow a computer simulation, there is an economic element or an economic, like, yes. perhaps tradition in computing as well, right? So even the yes. idea of entropy and again, you were saying before, import and export of entropy, <laughs> it kind yes. of, I don't know, made me think even more about this, this idea. I don't know. Like, no, no, sure, there is always going to be... Um, a general embedding economy. I think that's like I've. I certainly think that is fine. Um, but the trouble is, you don't know at what transcendental level that embedding yeah. occurs at. You know. So there's a there's a there's a totally fascinating, detailed, rich, complex dynamics narrative that would have as your ultimate ex outer reaches of your general economy would be the the entire ocean of elementary particles in the universe um, and no one could diss mm. the grandiosity of that story it would be extraordinary but even, but that is not your general economy as soon as you succumb to paranoia about the simulation argument because all of that mm. Is then just simply narrative, narrative filler within a particular simulated order. 
and the actual general economy is what is running that simulation and what is running that simulation yeah. is not accessible within the simulation yeah but then perhaps it would become not as much of an ontological argument but more of an epistemological I mean even the market isn't like the market like an epistemic like I don't know entity perhaps in the sense that it relates to circulation of information and knowledge more than what actually this information and knowledge is or even what what money is no one knows really right so we've been talking about money as like a semiotic like I don't know element so I don't know I'm not really sure I'm just trying to think like through this idea but yeah definitely like potentially I don't know if, if the universe for simulation yeah, the actual economic agents would be beyond that, I guess. Would be um, beyond. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know. We've approached this simulation. Be beyond the simulation, right? That's that's what. Yeah, you're beyond the simulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a fascinating thing about this is that obviously. On one level, the simulation argument is preposterous. I mean, I certainly don't want to pr pretend or, or suggest that it should be treated as kind of some norm for discussion. And yet, on the other side, it's absolutely mandatory because in talking about Bitcoin, as we've seen before, this transcendental empirical difference between the avatar and the economic agent is an unavoidable just completely colloquial reality of the functioning of that system. So so you have this, let's just say the simulation argument is actually these two things operating at these two different levels, one of which seems to be a kind of extreme hyper-metaphysical speculative venture of, of, of thought and open to derision on that account. It's not like I would deride it, but I think equally I think you have to be open to that, the fact that it's tempting derision. And and on the other side, it's something that is so basic to people's everyday social practices now that it's beyond any kind of real question. I mean, everyone just works with avatars. Everyone knows that they enter a system, operate within that system, and are not themselves actually fully integrated in that system and exist outside it and that they can therefore have uh, artificial identities uh, operating within that system that they do not themselves um, uh, like I, I don't want to say enjoy I don't know what you do with an identity like that if you coexist with it but um, but so that to me is a sort of interesting thing about this that you're sort of or you are kind of already inside this simulation argument as this inextricable element of this discussion just simply by the fact that we've seen the way these online machineries work now and obviously that's yeah. why the simulation exists now at this time in history it's not an accident it, it exists because it's 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 intuitively plausible to people because they know what it is to to operate avatars
Yeah. I don't think you guys are waiting for me to say something, right? Actually, I was sort of like looking at Luca here. Everyone can see a little thing. Like, what's running the simulation isn't accessible inside the simulation. Sure, as long as the code. And I'm just sort of trying to get a sense of what really quite is being suggested here. I mean, I think. Yeah, it's 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 as it's in, intriguing at least. Um, I think I would be tempted to go all the way with what's being suggested in that, but at the same time, I would, I would think that in doing so, one was inviting psychiatric intervention. <laughs> yeah, it kind of invites all sort of from you know, like acid head hacker realism. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the uh, suggestion there is just, um, you know, at, at least if, if we're taking kind of a broadly computational model for simulation, then at the bottom layer, there's no essential difference between the, the code and the data. Um, it's just a matter of, like, how it's allotted and how it's passed around. And, you know, almost anything reasonably, like, complex, unless it was, like, sort of cobbled together absolutely perfectly, there's going to be moments where you can kind of trip it up and, you know, cause some data to be taken as instruction. And so that's just like... Right. You know. <laughs> yeah, you can what? get a glitch yeah. in the system. Right, yeah. and where there's a glitch, you can get, like, you know, some foothold into it. But, yeah, this is kind of just me playing around a bit with uh, the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> where, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to go about... <laughs> Doing that for, you know, an I mean, universally I, I tempted to say that this, this, if you were going to see this as a project, then that is cabalism, mm -hmm. rigorously comprehended. Is the is the hmm. high ambition that from glitching in the simulation code, you can gain detailed, high bandwidth information about what is running the simulation. Yeah, there's something to be said there. Just that, you know, sorcery is basically like an attempt to like inject shell code into <laughs> into reality. Yeah. I could ask um if I might, uh, I don't want to derail anything, but a general question about the transcendental, transcendent framework. I'm afraid to ask it only because we've gone over it so much. I need, maybe need to just go ahead and look back at the other classes. But the question has to do with the transcendental, transcendent, oh, sorry, I, I kind of just woke up, the transcendental, which you spoke of in the beginning of this seminar. Uh, with regards to time, and, and you said a beyond, or a before and a beyond time, irreversible time. But throughout the entire eight classes, since we've been using this language, I've been trying to think, how far do you yourself, Nick, um, want to go with deploying this Kantian framework? Is it sort of a model to help us think about Bitcoin? Or is it 
somehow really epistemically and maybe even ontologically is, is this transcendental notion of time in any other transcendental categories applicable here, really the condition of possibility for some kind of machinic blockchain experience. Right. I'm just, you know, yeah. I'm really, I really kind of want to think through it and, and not just think of it as a metaphor. Like, oh, we're using yeah, yeah. language because it no, helps definitely. understand it. Definitely. I, I think, look, I, I'm sorry to keep referring back to this conversation with Chris, but but just before this, we, we were having a, a chat about certain things. And, and one of the things that came up there was this question about a set of different elements and to what extent are they actually integrated and what to and to what extent are they free axioms now, now this wasn't a uh, example but I think it works very well like this like is a particular claim about at the most abstract level the Kantian model of critique or transcendental philosophy um, a free axiom in this whole discussion and I think it's always safer as I was saying to Chris I think it's always safer to treat it as if it were but I would at least make the supplementary claim um, that it's really for us not free it's not a disposable it's not a disposable assumption and that and that philosophical modernity in an in a way that is inescapable short of a, a kind of um, in principle unintelligible catastrophe is structured in this way you know so so I don't think it's possible to overemphasize the degree to which this fundamental framework the framework of critique is something that just is uh, extends to all our horizons um, now obviously that in itself is a as a controversial claim a hu hugely controversial claim and the, the whole history of modern philosophy in a way is is a negotiation of that claim and a, and a, a challenge to that claim and you know as we've seen before Hegel in particular is a kind of condensation of um, opposition to that claim um, and to say you know that the, the fundamental problem that Kant sets us is something that has been has been solved and that sort of Hegelian historical thinking is post-Kantian and has, and has completely absorbed digested and resolved the, the problem set by Kant so what what I was talking about earlier uh, the transcendent conversation with Chris that is a beyond is in the absolute outside of this conversation was was about um, the absolute outside and the fact that that is a an anti-Hegelian or counter-Hegelian um, concept essentially. I was I think Chris was asking well, what really if you were to say really why what is involved in the invocation of the outside I think that what's involved in it ultimately is just, is is saying no to Hegel because with Hegel um, the absolute outside is 
um, dissolved. And he sees that he would see any invocation of the outside in a sense as, as a failure to understand the speculative, uh, the speculative relationship, the true historical speculative relationship between the phenomenon and the, in itself, or however that's going to be articulated for him. Um, the in itself and the for itself. Um, so to, 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 to invoke an outside, as we've done in a different context with this simulation argument, which is a radically transcendental argument, is obviously profoundly anti-Hegelian. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, this seems like a little bit of a drift and, and, a, and a, a kind of digression from the original question, but it's just to say, yeah. it's just to say, to go back to your initial question, to what extent Am I proposing that we are captured, or sort of that we have as our horizon this transcendental, critical, problematic, is to say, yes, that is something that I'm proposing, but I realize in saying that, that there's a kind of Hegelian antagonist in the wings that would refuse that. Yeah, that's great to, to keep that on mind. Let me rephrase it um, in one one question, which is to say, how important is it to keep thinking about the transcendental as the condition of possible experience then, in the traditional Kantian sense? As the conditions, it's what makes experience possible, as the conditions of possible experience. It well, seems like got, does that kind of drop out? It, I think if it's interesting. It, drops out for me a little bit because I think that it just leads into phenomenology and I think this is a wider problem than phenomenology. So for instance, if I, if talking about blockchain, we're talking about the, the transcendental uh, system is the, is the Bitcoin protocol and the empirical element is the commercial events that are happening within that registered upon the blockchain. Now, I don't find it helpful to translate that transcendental empirical difference into a discussion about conditions of possibility or, or, or of experienced. You know, I mean, what is or is not being experienced on the blockchain is to me a massively secondary, marginal issue. I mean, if for other people that's not the case and they want to do a sort of phenomenological reduction of experience of blockchain activity then I'm not trying to brick that off and it's not that I'm positively saying I've got some reason to see the blockchain obstructing phenomenological access or making some positive claim in that sense it's just to say the phenomenological vocabulary is not to me helpful in understanding the, the really useful helpful uh, machinery here, which is transcendental empirical difference. So, so, but objects and the condition of objectivity seems to me extremely helpful. Uh, experiences and conditions of possible experience, I just personally don't think is is taking us anywhere that helps a lot. But but Nick, there's a way to. I mean, I'm not trying to like at all. Uh, challenge you because I completely agree with you but but faced with this question maybe the a way to respond to Ian would be to say all 
all blockchain does is it limits, it puts a limit or deflates, deflates transcendental, the transcendental, doesn't destroy it or doesn't replace it, it kind of like puts limits on it or become the arbitrator. arbitrator. So, sorry, when you say it, I, I've just slightly lost you a little bit. It puts limits it, on experience, the, 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 are you saying? The experience, the transcendental, the phenomenology, the transcendental experience. It puts limits on it. It doesn't replace it. It doesn't negate it. Right. It doesn't end it. It just limits it. It makes it more kind of like, it makes it more responsible. But, but my or, only problem like, here is what, what really is experience doing? that is helping us here. I mean, it's like, I, I can easily imagine that someone would construct things in a way that would make it a positive argument of some kind, but at the moment I'm, I'm not seeing why a, uh, a sort of reference to experience is something that is, that is, that is helping us get this. Like, the, the blockchain is engaged in these commercial transactions. Um, and let, let's just say, for the sake of argument, it's probably helpful to bring in this Ethereum stuff. Say, say that we've randomly got some of our agents in the blockchain system, some of our wallets are these digital autonomous corporations. And they have developed a kind of insectoid level of intelligence that, again, just for the sake of argument, say, has no phenomenological characteristics whatsoever and we're mixed together with these agents engaged in various kinds of commerce and it's impossible from looking at the ledger and looking at these transactions to see which of the transactions are involving agents that have some kind of phenomenological dimension to them and which are involving agents that have no phenomenological um, dimension to them. Um, so it, given that possibility, which I don't think is particularly far-fetched, how is a reference to experience helpful? Per perhaps only in, in, the, in the period of transition. Perhaps only in, yeah, like bringing things down to the, to the community of humans that are still kind of like, are outside of it. I'm just being a little bit like like using like like what what people who interpret sellers talk about like you know what I mean like it like things has to come back to the manifest image or or there has to be a there has to be a mediation or overlapping between the scientific and the manifest image for it to make sense or have ethics in the human world right so this so and also in the period of in the period of transition if all people still know and understand is is the phenomenological and the transcendental, you need to somehow sort of like link to that in order to get out of it. And perhaps these, these arguments will only be needed in that, in that transition period. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be sort of like uh, yeah. on the side of Ian a little bit. Well, I mean, I think my, my position probably is on one pole of this kind of possible spectrum, but my sense of it a bit is this whole, you know, that old saw or whatever about on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. I mean, 
on the internet, no one knows you whether you're a DAC or a human or a robot or a zombie. I mean, I, so it just seems to me that for, for someone to then sort of invoke phenomenological authority is something that just doesn't get gain any purchase in this domain because we can't possibly tell which of the agents or avatars engaged in any particularly particular commercial interaction have relevant phenomenological dimensions to them um, so so you know how do you actually get that leverage to work in that situation I guess I'd want to um to try and make it as concrete as possible when we're talking about experience in Bitcoin by saying or just suggesting is it useful to think well what are the what is the sensory apparatus of the blockchain I mean what it has an input right it, yeah yeah and that input is I yeah I, I guess when a transaction takes place something is added to the blockchain and what is added is the quote-unquote experience of the blockchain because it is no, what it it's not, no it's it's not the experience it's the record but what other what other input is or input output sort of thing is there right like what else, experience is being able to take in um, make sense of organize I'm just throwing out some terms well I think it's just like if you think obviously someone engaged in um, neurobiology of non-human animals mm -hmm. uh, and writing papers about it in scientific journals would I think happily talk about sensory inputs they would be extremely reluctant to invoke the language of phenomenology and and mm -hmm. I would imagine people I, I mean I personally for whatever superstitious random reasons don't doubt for a minute that rats have experiences of certain kinds so it's not like I'm you know, I, I'm I'm denying that, but I would imagine that if you were a kind of um, engaged in sort of behavioral psychology of rodents, and you started talking about the experience of rats in your in your scientific papers, that it would be it would not be well received within the circles that those papers are circulating, precisely because um, because there's no scientific validation mechanism that can help you decide these questions about rat phenomenology at all you know you're just based on you're just simply invoking hunches or translating this language of sensation into a language of experience and phenomenology without any gain in scientific insight by doing that and and so it seems to me it's the same with this if you're using like when you talk about the sense uh, the sensorium of the blockchain, then I would say, yeah, of course, you know, and I can see how that would be cashed out very rigorously, very quickly. If you if you're talking about the experience of the blockchain, that seems to me a much more complicated thing to be doing. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in in a sense, I could say that you are suggesting and have been employing the, the critical apparatus, the apparatus of Kant's critique without the phenomenological side. Yes, I, I think it's completely independent. Mm -hmm. I think transcendental empirical difference has no dependency at all okay. on phenomenological categories. Um, 
So, yeah. But the ep epistemic side is still important in the sense... Well, I'm asking myself this question right now, and how about the notion of reason, then? Critique as being that which places limits on reason, or at least it, it discovers the boundaries, the place where reason ends. I mean, maybe is that language also kind of can be dropped out? We don't well, I think it's all very in intrinsically determined. So, I mean, if reason is just meant in Kant's sense, mm -hmm. as, as uh, processes of cognition that can proceed without reference to experience in his sense, and in experience to his sense meaning to the understanding, to sensation, um, then I think that it's there's an internally defined set of terms there. I mean, look, I've in in talking to you now, I've used the notion of experience in in in, in Kant's in Kant's terms, as about, and I guess implicitly what I have to be saying here to be at all consistent is that it seems to me there's a Kantian usage of the term experience that doesn't necessarily require deep phenomenological commitment at all. It's, it's basically just a way of saying that you're dealing with the understanding and with, and with sensation and not with pure reason. Great. I think I'm, I'm a little bit clearer now. I wanted to ask that since the last class, and it's something I'll keep thinking about. Yes. I mean, I think there's a, a task that I know I haven't at all done for this, which is a systematic translation of the language of Kantian critique into the language of, yeah. of um, the Bitcoin protocol. Um, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of sort of rich... Uh, detail that can that can go in there, and I don't, for a minute, doubt that experience could be translated into it, um, as as long as it is used in a strictly critical technical sense. Um, but and, and also, sorry, I, I, this is oh god, Amy's saying no, I don't know, that's scary. <laughs> I have to check out all this. <laughs> that wasn't yeah. to you. That was Amy's <laughs> note to the possibility of Peter Wolfenbill's virus spreading. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm being flippant. Oh yeah, yeah. This is the. What do you mean? Are we? Uh, I I don't know where to stop with this. Are we on Nagor at this point? What is it to be like to be? What is it like to be a bat? Oh my god. That's a. Um, I've just seen. The a pun here that is going to take me several hours to recover from. So as you know, we we're also like ten minutes over time. So yeah. If there are more questions and comments, maybe we can take them all to the classroom. We also kind of started with like off off live for about and like we we talked for about half an hour. Then the class started at yes. 10.20, and then now we're 10 minutes extra. So I think maybe it's time to wrap it up, if you guys don't mind. Yes, sure. And, yeah, let's use the classroom as a coordinating platform. So I'll, I'll make sure that I, I, I keep up to date with what people are saying there. And if people want some other opportunity to thrash things out or discuss it, it's definitely uh, something we can arrange for sure. Um, so, 
Great. So Nick, you'll keep. Um, will you keep checking the the new center email that's posted? On yes. Yes, I will. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yes. Great. Okay. Cool. So thanks everybody, not only for um, tonight, but for your stimulation throughout the whole thing. I've really, really enjoyed this and found it extremely productive and educational and interesting. So I'm very appreciative. Yeah, and I, I wanted to thank you, Nick. It was a very amazing experience to have you teach this seminar. And I'm sure, like, for, for months and months to come, people will be enjoying the, the archives. And lots of com good conversation will be generated from what we did here. And thanks to everyone. So I'm going to end the, end the seminar. And thanks for being with us for the last eight weeks. Bye-bye. Great. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, I already copied, Bye. The, Thank I already you. copied the sidebar notes. They're all in the classroom, too. Great. Okay, cool. Uh, Bye. Bye.